In the months before I turned 40, it felt like a big and intimidating number was looming ahead. I began to fret for the youth that was passing me by and wondered whether the best days of my life would be behind me. But when 40 finally descended, there was an unexpected release. It was even a time of revelation. Back in 7th century Arabia, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, received the first revelation of the Qur'an at the age of 40, in the month of Ramadan, the Islamic month of fasting. It would mark a tremendous change in the Prophet's life and a transformation in the society around him, one that he was about to trigger. I'm Ramona Ali, and you're listening to the Ramadan edition of Things Unseen, the podcast for people of faith and those who are spiritually curious. In this episode, we're exploring the theme of revelation and its significance to the age of 40 in Islam. We'll be hearing from three Muslims on their personal revelations as they share what turning 40 has meant for them. So welcome to my three guests. They are Manira Pilgrim, a poet, broadcaster and co-founder of the former hip-hop duo Poetic Pilgrimage, Abu Sharma, who is a children's author and a writer on Islam, and Ali Amla, a researcher, educator and interfaith advocate. Welcome to all of you. Assalamu alaikum. So it's wonderful to have you here. We are all in our 40s. Sorry, the truth is now out there. We've all experienced that milestone birthday. But just to get a quick sense check, what are your general thoughts and feelings in the lead up to turning 40? Manira. I never worried about age or thought about age. In my friendship groups, I had a lot of people who were panicky about age at each stage, 20s, 30s. But I never worried about 40. And because of my closer friends, I was a couple of years older than them. They were like, oh, you're the old one, you're the old one. And Jamaican parents have a tendency to age their children. So when you're six, they're like, what is a 10-year-old like you still doing that? So I wasn't nervous, but for some reason, this 40 seemed to have gravitas. I panicked in the lead up. I was scared. I was frightened. I was nervous, essentially. Okay, we will unpack that later. But for Abu Sharma, what were your feelings and thoughts? For a long time, I looked 27. 27 is almost 20 years ago. I remember taking five-year steps and saying, OK, I'll do this by 30, I'll do this by 35, I'll do this by 40. And many of the things I planned to do, I haven't been able to do by the time I turned 40. And it's just when you relinquish that control, things slowly start falling on your lap. The less you chase it, the more you attract it. It's kind of like this very paradoxical time of insights that you get, but you're not really looking for them at the same time. So I think it's an age of wisdom, I think. And Ali? On my 39th birthday, I had the desire to walk Machu Picchu for my 40th birthday. However, the new year before my birthday, I ended up in a hospital on a trip for five days. And then leading up to my 40th, I began to rethink life entirely. For me, that 40th came with hitting rock bottom in many ways. And I did get a chance to think about how momentous it was in turning 40. I was too busy trying to control my life as it was spiralling out of control. Thank you so much. 
So the Prophet received his first revelation at the age of 40. So Abu Shama, why is that age so significant in Islam? So you have the philosopher and psychologist Carl Jung, and he categorizes the human development into four categories. First thing he says is, as we're growing up, we're at the athletic phase of our life. Everything's about physicality, like how strong you are, what you could do. I mean, even if you look at footballers' life, they pretty much phase out by the age that they're 30. And then after that, you enter into the warrior phase of your life. And that's basically where you try to conquer the world. You literally see things and you go, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to do. This is all the things you sort of like mapped out. And then once you have some success in that area, you move into this idea of the states person. So you look at your contribution and you say, OK, how can I make a meaningful contribution to society? What can I do with my talents and experience that I've gathered? And then beyond that, around 40, you have that spiritual awakening. So this is the era of the spirit where you try to go, okay, these are the things that I'm doing, but I'm not really connecting with me, if that makes sense. Our brain cements around 27. So all of the synaptic connection happens. So you need a period of around 27 years to have that experience and you can bring something that's meaningful and provide something. So if you look at the life of the prophet, and it's, in fact, it's not just the life of the prophet, it's actually all of the prophets. They receive revelation beyond the age of 40. That's the age of uh, maturity, except Jesus Christ, Isa because he was a prophet from birth. It's fascinating. Thank you so much. And Munira, you did uh, quite a unique thing before you turned 40. Could you tell us what it was and why you did it? I sort of grew up in a Jamaican household and sort of Pan-African sort of communities. And the age of 40 is the end of youth. My uncle would always say, once you get to 40, you have responsibilities and you are going to be the person who has to start to guide the younger people in our family. And so this was something that I was hearing quite a lot and thinking about the prophet, peace be upon him, I thought... Of course, I'm not a prophet, but like if we're trying to follow in his footsteps at 40, he offered so much and I didn't know what I had to offer the world. So I thought the best way to sort of think about that was to call in wisdom from other people. So I set up an email address, which was something like, I'm turning 40 and I'm scared. I've got help. I'm turning 40 and I am scared at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> So I send that out to just a ton of people, family, friends, people who were older than me, younger than me, same age. And on my birthday and days after my birthday, I just read through all of the emails and just teared up with joy. It was just really wonderful and warming to receive so much love, but also to receive so much advice. And it made me feel rooted that actually I'm not doing this by myself. Many of people have walked this path. People are supporting me and I'm part of a community. I'm part of various different communities, actually. I think what you did was really wise in itself. I mean, you're looking for wisdom, but actually that was a very wise question to ask people. <laughs> so that was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. The Prophet went through great transformation and change in himself and in his environment. So Ali, you talked about change that you went through and you experienced when you were turning 40. Could you just elaborate on that? So it was quite a painful time for me. I was undergoing a separation and then lockdown hit. And that seclusion of lockdown meant I had to face myself, but I also had to face my demons. And I started walking. My friends would jokingly call me Forrest Gump because it wasn't run, forest, run. It was walk, Ali, walk. 
I was walking maybe two, three hundred kilometers a month, escaping with my thoughts, trying to grapple with what life had thrown at me. I was lost. I bumped into a friend of mine. They said to me, when I saw you last, you were lost. And now you've found yourself, you've grounded yourself, and you've managed to come out of this turbulent time a different person. So very much like the butterfly, I went through a process of chrysalis. I may not have come out beautiful, but I've definitely come out a different person, much more grounded, much more resilient, but also much more conscious that life is short gosh, the multiple changes that you went through, the upheavals really led to completely unexpected places for you. So that was really, really interesting. The prophet was 40 himself when God revealed the first verses of the Quran. So he had 40 years of preparation, but the first revelation was also really overwhelming. He was shaken up. He experienced fear. There was doubt before certainty. There was denial before acceptance. Do any of those feelings resonate with you, Abishama? I've been quite mature for my age from early on. So I always used to look up to people five, ten years older than me. People used to tell me, when you get to 40, this is how it's going to be. I didn't get that, but I was actually chasing it. So I would do certain things like, so I'll give you an example of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. He would seclude himself in the mountains called Jabal al-Nur. So I was looking for that kind of experience. So in my early life, I was pretty much doing all of the adrenaline stuff, like, you know, roller coasters, jumping off here and there, abseiling and so on. But later on, I started looking for seclusion. So often if there was a trip that was coming along where you can isolate yourself in the cave, with absolutely no light, pitch black. I loved that. And then I started doing stuff like flotation pods. So you literally go and you immerse yourself and the temperature is at your body temperature and you're there with no noise. So what the pod does is isolates. So it's basically sensory deprivation. And so I've been doing that kind of thing just to hear my own thoughts, what kind of thoughts uh, come to your mind and so on. Do those feelings resonate with you, Minera? Yes, so those feelings definitely resonate with me and they didn't stop at 40. (laughs) I feel like this age is the age where I have to learn not to indulge those feelings of self-doubt. As a child, teens, 20s, 30s, I also felt a lot of guilt, a lot of shame about things that had nothing to do with me. And I think that stopped me, the experience of fear and sometimes nervousness. That stops people and that has stopped me in my past. But how do I feel that, embrace what that means and still continue and then be able to offer something on the other side of that? And in doing that, that allows me to be compassionate to myself, more compassionate to other people and to have the capacity to just love a bit harder and, you know, to love more. Beautiful. So the Islamic historian and scholar Ibn Kathir stated that when a person attains 40 years, his complete intellect, understanding and patience reach the level of maturity. Ali, would you agree with that? Without a doubt. I spent so much time before 40 surrounded by people. I needed to go through a process where I spent time alone. And now I sometimes jokingly say, I'm still so antisocial. I prefer the company of a book than people. And being a single dad and co-parenting, it's a beautiful thing as much as it is challenging. I value my time with my children that little bit more than when they were living with me full time. 
But when they're not with me, I see the world, I go and experience, and I value that time without them. It's weird to even say that. What, you value your time without your children? Sometimes we don't think about it in that way, particularly when you're busy with life. You don't actually consciously think about your time with your children at 40. Actually, as a dad, I need to give my children time more than anything else. We've had some of the best conversations on our walks in West Yorkshire, out there in the middle of nowhere. But then delving into one another's souls and minds has been a process which has brought us so much closer together than I could have ever imagined. And Abu Sharma. So I went to a wedding once and uh, in that wedding, uh, we were looking for the elders. We were literally at this wedding and we're like going, who's going to organise this? And somebody turns around and says, you guys are. And that's when you went, oh my God. We can't complain about the youth because we are the one that needs to shape them and we need to provide because we are the link. And uh, with the Prophet ﷺ, you look at his life and he was catapulted into that position. Uh, and he had lots and lots of different experiences. And there was an element that is to do with seeing human behavior and then mimicking the best of behavior. And there is the other side, which is the divine side. His character was basically being made through the Quran. So 40 for me was kind of a big shock, especially when you become a father. You go, I am responsible. And I think sometimes the child brings that element to it because you go, you know what, I have to pass this tradition on. And sometimes as adults, we can actually lose ourselves. You know, our child becomes everything and we forget ourselves. So it's trying to get that balance where we are trying to, you know, see the end stages of our life. And we are also trying to nurture the next generation. I think that's where the prophetic uh, side comes in, which is all about nurturing and tarbiyah. It's not a one person show. It's more of a successor and you need successors. You need a community and you have to build that. 40 is a good age for people with experience to actually influence people who are very zealous, if I could say. So you sort of like tame it down and say, this works, this is brilliant, bring that youth energy, but also the experience of the elders. Yeah, I think what you say is resonating with me. Someone turned to me, he was in his early 20s, and I said, oh, would you like some cake? And he's like, oh, no, thank you, auntie. And I kind of looked over my shoulder, I'm like, who is he calling auntie? And you realise it is you and you are the elder now. And uh, as you say, trying to kind of champion the next younger generation. It's a bit of a rude awakening, though. At the age of 40, the Prophet Muhammad had the biggest growth and change ahead of him. But why do you think we're so fixated on having our lives figured out by 40? You know, is it due to societal or cultural expectations or even both? Manira? I do think it is part and parcel of living in a modern capitalist society where, I guess, particularly for women, ageing, you know, you can solve that. You can solve that with a cream that only costs this amount or with this treatment. So I think there are those things. But some of that, of course, is rooted in different people's cultures. So there is the expectation, like for myself, I don't have children. It almost feels like as a woman who doesn't have children, first of all, do you ever age or are you still a child? If you don't have children and you're not married, you're almost like 
seen as someone younger. You're not respected, you know. And so these ideas of womanhood and what it means to be a woman are tied up in age, right? So on one hand, if you don't have this by your 40, you're still a child and you're not respected. But, you know, if you do have this, we have a problem. We have a cream to solve for this. So I think there are those complications and those things. But I think also there is family pressures there. Like for my family coming from the Caribbean and particularly the generation that they were, they were able to buy their house, you know, um, some of my family set up businesses and were comfortable. And so when they see me, oh, she's, she's a what? A broadcaster? What is that even? A poet? What is that? And I don't have these sort of milestones. It's sort of seen as I haven't succeeded, um, where I guess in many ways, again, that comes down to capitalism. Mm, yes, unconventional milestones that you've reached rather than the conventional ones. Mm. Um, Abhishama? Everybody's like living this rat race. Uh, and uh, every now and then you get some people who don't live that. I got out of university. I did s- subjects like engineering. People said, this is the place to go. You know, engineering, there's jobs everywhere. So you're also like fixated on going into an engineering career. I'm going to be sorted for the rest of my life. You come out and you realise there's not actually that many engineering jobs. So you go, what do you do? So you go, okay, uh, I need to get into the city. And then you sort of like do that for a while and you go, actually, this isn't quite doing it. This isn't exactly what I envision life to be. So then I decided to leave all of that, go into uh, teaching. I get told all the time, like, when are you going to buy your house? I delayed having a child for a long time because I, I felt like I needed to be in a position where I could provide my son a, a place to stay. And um, so I one day I realised I'd been married for 10 years and I haven't got into any kind of position where I've got enough savings to buy something. This isn't how I expected life to be. I didn't expect life to be like this. When you see that contrasted with all of your friends sort of doing well and you feel like you're the one that's been left behind, right? So, so this trajectory everybody's like pushing for, you realise that actually there are some people who... Who won't get that? And then what are you supposed to do? So when I did have my son and so on, uh, and I left teaching and everything, I decided to homeschool him. And in in doing that, I'm finding a different career. So it's just, it's very, very paradoxical, as I was saying, that you think this is what you're being set up to do. And then you, you sort of like abandon that. And then you find yourself in another place. And then as a parent, as a homeschooler, I've got access to information. I've got access to how a child sort of develops. And you go, hang on, I did not envision myself to be this or a children's writer or something like that. So, so it's, it's, it's kind of strange. I mean, so it's, it's this idea of like, you know, you have to embrace what life gives you rather than trying to chase these kind of dreams that somebody else might have just, you know, it's just, it's just stickers and labels that you need to be attaining, you know, getting to the next stop along the, along the way. Yeah. So it shows that life really isn't linear <laughs> at all. Um, Ali? I was always a, a chunky guy, uh, was never really interested in health and fitness. Uh, but about a year ago, I managed to do the Yorkshire Free Peaks, which is 24 and a half miles. And I would never have imagined, never mind walking to the corner shop, doing 24 and a half miles was a huge accomplishment for me, which I would never have dreamed of doing. And I don't think I would have ever managed to have done had I not left the house thinking, I need to find and work my head out. And I found a love for walking, which was phenomenal. And I think that love for walking, not just 
walking for the sake of walking, but walking to build my mental health resilience, to ensure my physical health remains, but also walking to build bonds with people as well. Great, from corner shop to Yorkshire Peaks. So reflecting on everything that you've gone through before turning 40, how do you think you've grown spiritually, Manira? I think about this a lot. I think I've always been that type of like intense, even as a child, really intense, like what does, what's the meaning of life? How do I grow from about the age of five, which was confusing for most of my family. But um, I've been thinking about 10 in the age of 40. And I think spiritually I'm going through a shedding. You talked about like, you know, intellect. And I don't think my intellect is in place, but I think my intellect is at a point where I'm curious and that curiosity always propels me and leads me to somewhere else. And also just shedding of expectations at the time of turning 40, just before I was suffering a bit of a bad friendship breakup. It reminded me that actually I've got to think about myself and just the way how people may perceive me and how I'm perceived by people, you know, that is not the real me. The real me is a relationship between myself and Allah. You know, people see snippets of me, but it's not the real me. There's a supplication for turning 40. And I think it was Prophet Ayub in both of those duas or both of the supplications. It says something about help me to be grateful. And so I think there's a sort of like realisation, there's a sort of understanding that actually that threshold of 40 is going to be difficult and there's going to be struggles. I'm at the point where I'm trying to shed people's opinions. I'm even trying to shed my own opinions of me, shed my guilt about things, shed my shame about things, always be curious. And in that process, asking Allah, you know, to help me to be grateful about what I do have in my life and who I am becoming. Manira, when you um, did your email birthday call out and you had all these responses, was there anything that surprised you or particularly struck you? I had a look over it, <laughs> trying to pick out the special gem. But everything that was said was really special and it was so many different things. But I think one thing that surprised me more about myself than what the person had actually said is that they said, congratulations, you're over the hill now. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what do you mean over the hill? But then she said, you're over the hill. So all of the struggles that you had before in trying to accept yourself, trying to find out who you are, all of the things that you feared, all of those things, you could let go of them now. This is the part of your life where you start to let go of those things. And for me, that made over the hill take on a completely different meaning. So it is Ramadan. It's a special month that Muslims believe is a time that the first revelation of the Quran was made. What lessons do you take from the revelation story that you can apply to your own life, Ali? So revelation began with the word Iqra, read. Uh, and for me, one of the things I've always tried to inculcate into my children is that habit of reading, uh, of reading together as a family, uh, but also reading individually. And so for us, for the first revelation, as a family, that's incredibly important to us. Uh, we're a hoarder of books. We love reading. But also this Ramadan, we've 
ordered a book together that we're planning to read during every day of the month where we're going to read a chapter of this particular Reflections of Ramadan and use that reading opportunity to connect ourselves to one another. More importantly, connect ourselves to the Quran, to connect ourselves to the Prophet but also connect ourselves to Allah. And fundamentally, Ramadan is that month of connection uh, and sometimes in a fragmented world, we forget that connections are the most important thing that we must cherish more and more. Abu Sharma, you have an interesting take on the Prophet being a mercy to humanity, as is described in the Quran. Could you tell us a bit more on that? The idea of mercy, sometimes we look at it from the lens of like looking after someone. The idea of you see someone in in a need and you take pity on them or you have sympathy and you give them something, something that's generous and feel like you've done a merciful act. And it is a merciful act and it is a generous act. There is another idea of mercy, which is more encompassing, uh, which is the idea of mercy, which is rahma, which is also linked with womb. And if you look at the womb, the womb is is the place where a fetus is developed. The womb isn't literally just supplying, you know, little amount of food. It's actually providing the entire nourishment for the child to grow as a human being. So their eyes and their ears and their body and every facet of, of the human being is being developed in the womb. That's what mercy is. Now, if you take that idea of mercy and then you put it on a societal level where you have the Prophet ﷺ was described as a mercy to everything. You start thinking, how was he a mercy? One, he was sent as a teacher. And the second one is perfecting character. So what does that character mean? It means developing you as a human being. So the Prophet ﷺ was developing each person in the way that they need to be developed, not necessarily what is right, not justice. Because justice doesn't develop a person. Justice just tries to bring some sort of equilibrium. One particular narration, one of the Bedouins came and he grabbed the Prophet ﷺ saying, like, where is my money? The man was choking him. And then the Prophet ﷺ gave two pieces of advice. He said to Omar, your brother has a right. You should tell me as your brother to fulfill my right and pay the debt. And then you should tell that person to ask his right in a gentle way. And then they went and they got the money from the Baytul Mal and they gave it to the man. And you'll see all of the stories of the Prophet and the narrations that you see. He uses wisdom all of the time. When the man came and urinated in the mosque, everybody wanted to go, this is a sacred place, how could you urinate in the mosque? He let the man finish. And when he finished, he said, this is a sacred place and this is where we worship. So the man realized if he wanted, he could have asked all of the people to come and beat me up. But he didn't. He let him finish and then he asked for someone to bring a bucket They chucked a bucket of water and off he went. He understood that, hang on, this man is different. So he came back and he he came and he started to learn more about the religion. I think he converted. So so the thing is, he was developing people through those experiences. He wasn't trying to preach in a way or convince people. He was bringing out the best of them. And that's an act of mercy. That's so fascinating. I mean, even with the the womb paradigm. So I always thought of the cave of Hira where the prophet, peace be upon him, he received the first revelation and he was there, you know, secluded and in reflection, that that was like the womb. But then you're speaking about the prophet himself as this uh, merciful kind of womb, nourishing, life-giving source to the community as well. 
Yes, definitely. And you also have like the angelic realm as well. So we believe in this. So you will find in the womb, the angels are the being that's within within the womb, uh, developing the the human being, uh, blowing the, that spirit. So this idea of angels are connected with mercy. So it's almost like you're trying to bring an angelic community as if like you're bringing heaven down onto earth. So we live in a very fast-paced world. We're busy with our everyday lives. But Ali, has turning 40 made you more conscious of your mortality? This is really difficult for me, particularly because in the last 12 months, two childhood friends, two people I grew up with passed away incredibly suddenly both with a heart attack. And turning 40 has been a real reminder and a reminder that more friends will inevitably come to the end of their life. But also, I will inevitably draw my last breath at some point as well. I was very unhealthy, I'm diabetic, and I would often say I'd be lucky if I lived to 50. Uh, so I was very conscious of the fact that I'm living on borrowed time. Each day is incredibly valuable. However, saying that, that reminder of death is not morbid for me. It's empowering to live life fully. I don't believe reflecting on death is morbid. I, I believe reflecting on death st- allows me to live life to its fullest. Manira. Certainly, I am much like Ali. I've had so many people between now and the pandemic lose their life, right? And pass away. And a lot of that responsibility and realizing my age came with having to do things like organize the funeral. You know, doing things like having to support people, having to explain to younger people. Even when my grandma passed recently, I had to tell my mum and um, her siblings. So, yeah, definitely I'm aware of um, mortality, but it isn't something that I think about in terms of as a negative thing. You know, Um, I have a poem and it starts off by saying, my mum talks about death like family members coming to visit. She wants the walls painted and the and the carpets and the corridors cleaned before they arrive. My dad says, if God spare my life, which just means if God spares my life, is something that my parents, my grandparents, people in my family have said after sentences all the time, almost like, inshallah, God willing. You know, even if I say something, my mum would correct me and say, if God spare your life. And so this idea that this is a part of the cycle of life, this isn't the end. There's something afterwards. Because when my grandma passed away, something that I realised, you know, she had dementia beforehand and I felt really sad for years before she passed away because I was like, she's not the woman she used to be. She doesn't remember me. But then I realised when she passed, you know, and I've heard people talk about people of God, people of Allah, you know, she felt bigger and stronger and there was something almost restored about her. We love them, so we we lose people and we cry. But actually, it is just a returning to God and 
that is how we become bigger. That is how we become reconnected. So it just feels like a freeing. Although I still don't want to pass away quite yet. Got plenty of years in me. You definitely do. During the 23 years um, after the prophet turned 40, he received many more revelations and he left a legacy, the legacy of Islam. So what about personal legacies? What personal legacy do you want to leave behind? For me, the legacy is my children. Everything I give to them, I invest in them, will be my legacy. The testimony will be that they will grow up to be great individuals. Uh, that's my hope, to be my greatest legacy. With my interfaith work, I would continue my interfaith work in two directions. One would be to occasionally pen my thoughts, and the other was to train young people to do interfaith uh, and to have a deeper understanding. And for me, those young people are the legacy, inshallah, that I will, be, I will leave behind. Uh, but also, in any small way I may have touched a person's life, that's a legacy as well. Minera. In terms of legacy, I think healing is a big thing for me. A lot of my work is to do with healing. And I want people to engage with my work, engage with my poetry, to heal parts of themselves. We feel pain and everyone feels pain, but not everyone needs to suffer. And I think once we get rid of some of these healings, we're able to then focus on what does Allah want for us. So I think healing is part of the legacy that I would like to leave behind. Abishama. So th there is this idea that when you die, you can leave legacies behind. So your legacy is your children or any kind of like books you've written or any kind of like uh, charity that's ongoing. So that's that's keeping you alive. And in some way he says, uh, there's a very famous quote that he says, like a man dies uh, twice, I think. Once is when, when he actually dies and the second time is when he's forgotten. And so we don't want to be forgotten. We want to be leaving a legacy. Every year I have my birthday and everybody wants to celebrate, you know. I actually go, okay, I've got one extra year. I've left one and I, I beg Allah to give me one extra year and I want to leave uh, my children behind. And what I mean by children is I, I'm, because I'm a writer, I see my books as my children. So that's my thing. So I wish God will give me another year so I can leave, you know, lots of children behind. And so this idea of preparing your book in the hereafter and leaving books here. Thank you to my guests, Abu Sharma, Munira Pilgrim and Ali Amla for sharing their reflections and 40-year-old wisdoms. Hearing their views has confirmed for me that turning 40 can be a daunting and complicated thing, but also a beautiful one. It's a halfway point in life, like a mid-Ramadan moon, and there's a yearning for fullness. But we wax and wane and keep recognising that there is so much more to learn as we move forward through life. The growth doesn't stop, and the revelations, they just keep on coming. I'm Ramona Ali, and this has been the Ramadan edition of Things Unseen, the podcast for people of faith and those who are spiritually curious. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. Thanks for listening. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.